0: Thanks so much. It's an appropriate way to begin uh, our time together as we open God's word to recognize God's spirit and uh, welcome, welcome His spirit, and ask Him to move in our hearts. Thank y'all. As we continue today in in this series in First Samuel, we're going to be talking about really, uh, I think, an appropriate topic as we think about uh, the Holy Spirit being one that Jesus sent as as a friend. We're talking about friendship. Uh, Godly friendship is the name of of the sermon. And so 1 Samuel chapter 20 will be our our text if you want to turn there as we read that in just a few moments. And one of the things about friendship, good, close friendship, I think is that you can be who you are with all your warts and all the, the things that are imperfect about you and you can just be that person with, with someone else, and, and they're okay with that. And sometimes they might even joke with you about that, but, it, but it's okay. Ed likes to give me a hard time uh, about one moment. I guess I'd been at Eastwood a, a year or so, and uh, we took a trip to see my little brother in, in a boxing match. He was boxing in Houston. And so this was uh, really before I'd had a, a, most folks, not everyone had a smartphone in these days, and so you used just the square box GPS. And these were the, the GPS's that you couldn't just say, I want to go to this place and it take you there. You actually had to input uh, the address of where you were going. Therefore, there was a greater room for user error. And so I typed in the address of where we were going. Uh, but I didn't know that the road that this, this place where my brother was boxing ran both north and south. And that the GPS automatically selected north, if you didn't select anything and so we're driving along in Houston and and you know how the GPS directs you turn left and turn right and then all of a sudden it says you've arrived at your destination and there we are on a, a feeder road off of interstate 10 staring at a vacant lot next to a facility that looked like it manufactured storage containers you've arrived at your destination And it kept telling me that. we drive around and i try to say, well, this this doesn't look like you've arrived at your destination. No, we haven't. And Ed's in the back seat saying, can we just pull over and look at a map maybe? (laughs) Thankfully, technology has evolved a little bit since those times and and myself being directionally challenged, if I need to go somewhere, I don't have to input an address and worry, worry about getting it wrong. All I say is, Siri, take me to... McDonald's or wherever it is we need to go. And, and she takes me there. And my kids have gotten so used to that when they get in the car and we're going on a trip, if I don't take it out, if I don't set it up, they'll say, Dad, aren't you going to ask Siri how to get where we're going? But they just know. They trust Siri more than they trust me. It's interesting the way that, you know, Siri is a form of artificial intelligence and the way that, that artificial intelligence is, is evolving and the way we speak to it. Uh, Michelle got a free... Google Home Mini. They're they're these little circular devices. It's kind of like an Alexa, if you know what that is. and uh, It kind of works like your smartphone and and you can talk to it and ask it to do different things and it'll do some things and there's certain code words that trigger it to respond uh, as you command it. And so I come home one day and they'd taken this Google Home Mini out of the box and my kids are gathered around it and one of them says, Google, tell me a story. And I thought, well, it's not going to know what to do. Well, sure enough, Google starts, to, I don't remember what story it was. It was this age-appropriate story. It goes into this long story about this bunny, and he's hopping along, and I don't remember what happened to it, But it, and my kids are just sitting there listening to the story about the bunny being told by a robot. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And then they said, this was around Christmas, hey, Google, play some Christmas music, and Google launches into rocking around a Chris, the Christmas tree and we listen to Christmas music as we're making dinner. and it's just strange the way you can speak to it now. My, my favorite story, this was from a friend, didn't happen to me, but my favorite story about children interacting with artificial intelligence comes from another pastor friend. And, and she writes she, she posted this on social media. She said, "If you've received a strange email from me yesterday, Here is why. On Tuesday night, my son Nate was playing with my phone. He said, Siri, what is my name? And Siri said, Carol. Nate said, from now on, call me Unicorn Booty Forever. (laughs) Siri said, okay. And Carol says, I laughed and I forgot about it until I discovered the next day that Siri had labeled all my outgoing emails... As being from Unicorn Booty Forever. Can you imagine getting an email from Pastor Unicorn Booty Forever? (laughs) That doesn't negate the usefulness of artificial intelligence, the fact that we can glean information from it, that that we can even use it to, to be entertaining and useful and and i'm not one of those you know doomsday enthusiasts that have watched the terminator movies too many times that thinks that you know the artificial intelligence is going to turn on us and uh you know take over the world or anything like that i'm not looking for skynet but i have to admit that it's just a little strange a little creepy interacting with it speaking to it and and you feel like almost you're talking to a person one night michelle says hey siri uh, wake me up at whatever time. And Siri chimes in with her normal response. Okay, Michelle, your alarm will go off at... And she tells her. And then Michelle says, thanks. And I said, you know, after you, you tell her to do something and she does it, she's not listening anymore. She's not really expecting you to say anything. She says, I know, but it just feels weird, you know. It feels impolite when she does something for you not to say thank you. It's, it's not... A real relationship it's not a real friendship but it, but it kind of feels like one and and sometimes some of our real friendships can take the form that the, the relationships we have with artificial intelligence just this kind of utilitarian method of well this person does this for me so I'm friends with them remember when you were younger and you wanted somebody to do something for you and you would say Hey, if you, don't, if you do this, if you do this for me, if you give me this or do what I want you to do, I'll be your best friend. And, and maybe that person responded favorably because, well, hey, who doesn't want another best friend when you're a kid, right? Or if you were even more manipulative, you would say, hey, if you don't do this, I won't be your friend anymore. Some of you know kids like that. Some of you were kids like that. But we know as adults that that's not friendship. But some friendships take that Form. And even some of the relationships in the Bible, some of our Old Testament heroes demonstrate that they knew nothing about godly friendship. You remember when Abraham not once but twice lied about his wife Sarah being his sister. I mean, this was someone he was married to, so you'd think he'd know how to be her friend. But he lied about that so so that he wouldn't be harmed, and whatever come you know whatever happened to her was well if someone wants to steal her away and marry her? Well, at least I'm okay. And then, not long after that, his, his grandson Jacob demonstrated he had no loyalty to, to many family members when his, his uncle Laban, well, first Laban tricked him, and then he married both his daughters, and he tricked Laban out of all his, his livestock and, and many of his possessions. And then the apple does not fall, fall too far from that tree because we read how Jacob had Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And so you have this family that really is supposed to be set apart by God to be God's chosen people, showing that they have no idea even within their families how to be friends with one another, how to relate to one another. But in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we have, I think, maybe the most famous friendship in all the Bible between, between two very unlikely people, between David and, and Saul's son, Jonathan. And I'm going to read about that account 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and and turn there. We're going to begin in verse 16. 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, "'Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone etzel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, "'Go find the arrows.' If I say to him, "'Look, the arrows are on this side. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger.'" But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in the customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the mill either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brothers ordered me to be there. But if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on the second day of the feast he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, "'Run and find the arrows I shoot.' As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, "'Isn't the arrow beyond you?' Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. So David and Jonathan's friendship was ahead of the curve of the other relationships we see in the Old Testament. And it's this model of godly friendship. And rather than looking like the other relationships we see in the Old Testament and Scripture, it looks ahead to that passage that was read not long ago out of the Gospel of John that Branton read, where Jesus' famous words said, "...greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down, lays down his life for one's friend." That's what godly friendship is. And We're looking at it from this perspective of Saul and Jonathan, and from that we see that godly friendship first is rooted in God's sacrificial love. It's rooted first in who God is above over who we are. Several years ago, uh, a sci-fi book and then movie followed called The Hunger Games. And if you saw that movie or read that book, you, you, you know the basic idea uh, of this future uh, dystopian society with all these, these. there were 12 districts. And, and The Hunger Games was this horrible uh, spectacle that the people were in charge pitted people in to, to, to keep them subservient to the powers. And, and every district had two people that were chosen to participate in these Hunger Games, young people, and they would fight until there was only one person left alive. And, and the, the, the uh, first book opens in District 12, which was the, the worst and, and the poorest of all the districts, and, and a little girl named Primrose has been, been chosen to be in the next Hunger Games. And, and if you've seen the movie or read the book, you know that as she's approaching and, and she's about to be made official as being the participant from District 12, that, that her sister Katniss volunteers and, and she screams, I volunteer, I take her place, I volunteer as tribute. And that's what the whole book and the whole movie is about. It's about Katniss as she's taken her place and, and fights in the Hunger Games as, as a young teenager. And, and it's, a, it's, it's an amazing act of, of sacrifice for her to do that in the place of her sister, on one hand. But on the other hand, as people who have brothers and sisters and parents, we'd say, well, I would hope that I would do the same thing for, for my family. It's, it's a sacrifice. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, a, a self-sacrificial act but when we think about God's self-sacrificial love in Christ, it's, it's not even as great as that because that was not something that we really can relate to. It was not something that God did out of family obligation. When, when God sent Christ, it wasn't because He looked down and, and said, well, uh, th- these people really deserve uh, a sacrifice. He didn't look down and say, well, uh, this is my brother or my sister like we do when we look at our family. And He sent Christ in spite of us, not because of us. And when Jonathan and David model this friendship, they speak about the love that they have for one another. In verse 17 on your screen, Jonathan says that he loved David as he loved himself. And this is the only relationship in the Bible, really it's the only relationship between two men as friends that the Bible even speaks of. It's the only place where, where any type of relationship like this is discussed or addressed at all. But in spite of his father, I think that the biggest thing, it's in spite of who his father was, in spite of all that Saul had come to be and all that we've seen him become as we've gone through this series, Jonathan is able to say that he loves David as he loves himself. And so they work up this plan where you know he's going to go and shoot these arrows, and, and they have this code. If they go to this side, uh, if, if he says they're going to this side, then the boy goes over here. If they go to this side, the boy goes over there. And one way means that. Well, David is safe, and, and the other one means that he's not. And the plan itself is, is not all that special. It's, it's a decent plan. It's, it makes sense to use it. But the plan itself is not the amazing thing. I think more important than the plan itself is the way that Jonathan understands this commitment that he's made to David. He speaks of it as a covenant. And in verse 23 he says, About the matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. It's, it's a covenant. And that's what God made with His children through, through Abraham. He made a covenant with them forever to, to seek their good, to do good for them. And, and it's the same type of, of covenant love that Jonathan and David are, are modeling and expressing. And that's difficult for us. You know, guys, it's difficult for us to think about being friends in that way because we base friendship on things that we have in common. If there's a sporting event that we enjoy together, well, I have a friend that goes and he watches the game with me. Or if we enjoy going to a place to eat together, that we base it around that. We don't want to talk. We don't want to relate very much. We just like being together and, and we enjoy that, whether it's seeing a movie or whatever it might be. But when it comes to the relation part, that's not so much where we're skilled at. Now, now women are a little different. Women can relate with one another over things that are trivial, over a game of bunko. You know, I mean, women do that. They throw the dice and and you have relationships. But just because you have a relationship, whether it's over throwing dice or, you know, your your friend's purse party or whatever it might be, doesn't mean that it's modeling this same relationship self-sacrificial relationship, this same godly friendship that's talked about in Scripture. And so that's what we need to think about is, is, is the friendships we have, are they the godly friendships that's modeled here? Uh, because if it is, what we see when we look at Jonathan and David is that there's risk involved. It's, it's rooted in God's self-sacrificial love and as a result, godly friendship uh, is, is willing to risk. It's willing to risk who we are. It's willing to risk sometimes our own well-being. And there's some cases where risk is scary. There's some situations where risking who we are can be dangerous. But there's also some situations where risk makes sense in life, doesn't it? You know, we've had some, some kids that have gone on and, 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 and graduated from, from, uh, you know, from school and they've been a part of our church and, and they join the army, or they've joined another branch of the armed service. And it's neat when they come home, when I, when I see them after they've gone through boot camp, uh, because they're just, they're totally different. They're, you can tell they're a totally different person from the way that they speak to the way that they walk, just their whole, their whole demeanor is different. And part of that is, is physical training, isn't it? Part of that is that they've... They've physically been trained in a way that they, are, they really are physically a different person, but they've also been mentally trained. They've been trained to, to, to that they now, as, as a soldier or whatever branch they may have joined, that they have this, this greater thing that they are charged with protecting and this greater code that they are supposed to uphold. And, and so it does change who they are in the way that they look at things because they have this thing that's bigger than themselves that they're taking care of. And, and to be sure, uh, the, the risk that someone in the armed service might be called upon to, to undertake compared to the risk that I might take, I mean, they, they pale in comparison. There's, never, there's not one risk I can think of that I would take that would probably be as big as the risk they may be asked to take. But the risk of godly friendship is different. Because it's not on behalf of something big and something ideal. When, when we look at, at Saul and Jonathan and the relationship that they have, it's, it's, it's risk on behalf of one individual. When we go back to, to John chapter 15, greater love has no man than this than one lays his life down for his, his friend. It's just a single person. And Jonathan is willing to do that for David, not not for the greater good of something else, not because if he does that, then his father's kingdom is going to flourish. In fact, it's just the opposite, isn't it? If he does that and protects David, then his father's kingdom and in his place in line for the throne is, is not going to be a possibility. But David is an individual. He's a friend. He's someone that Jonathan loves, he says, as he loves himself. And so, as they're, they're having, you have this scene where they're having dinner, and, and it's, it's this important feast, and it was really an insult not to be present at the king's table during these important feasts. And he covers for David. He, he says that he's, he allowed him to go to Bethlehem for, for a family situation. And, and David, Saul, of course, doesn't buy it, and, and he gets upset and he calls his son, You uh, says, You are a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I don't need to, to give you the modern translation of that, do I? You kind of follow in there. People say the Bible's boring. And he orders for David to be brought to him so he can kill him. And that was confirmation for Jonathan that this, this is... He's right. David's right. He, he really does want to kill him. He's going to have to leave. And, and this is going to be the end, as far as he can tell, of, of our friendship, of us being able to see each other. But he asked one question that all parents hate to hear, especially a parent that's kind of going crazy, like, like Saul in verse 32 on your screen. He asked him why. Why, why, does, why does David deserve to die? What, what has he done? And that just sends his, sends his dad even, even further into his fit, and he throws a spear at him, and he tries to kill him. But he asked him why, because his loyalty to David was, was over his own well-being. He was willing to risk who he was, for the sake of David. If you've ever ridden on an airplane, uh, you know they give you these speeches of how to do your seatbelt, uh, what to do during an emergency, and, and part of that is if uh, in, in, in the event that the air pressure in, in the cabin changes, these devices come down, these breathing masks, and they tell you how to put those on. And they always tell you, if you're riding with a child, they tell you to put yours on first, Right? Because the logic is, if if you don't put yours on and you pass out, well, there's no one to help your kid. So do yours first, take care of yourself, then you help your kid. But they have to tell people that because it goes against your instinct, doesn't it? If you're sitting next to your kid and and these masks come down, you want to make sure your kid's okay. But if you're doing that and you're huffing and puffing and breathing, and maybe you have two or three kids, you might run out of air. So they're saying, no, take care of yourself, then you take care of your kids. Because that's the kind of risk that makes sense to us. But in godly friendship, we see, we see Jonathan taking this risk that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. When it comes to godly friendships, the Bible challenge, challenges us to cultivate the same sacrifice, the same sense of, of risk, even in relationships that, that may not benefit us, that may not make sense to us, even in situations where uh, it may not come natural to us. And that brings us to the last thing. godly friendship involves sacrifice and risk. And and, and because of that, because of its its special and and unique character that, that calls us over and above even the things that are natural to us, godly friendship transcends our earthly barriers. Now, there's no sermon, I think, that we complete about friendship that didn't bring up the old Michael W. Smith song, Friends. Right? It came out in the 1980s. And it's borderline cliché because it's, it's just been used so many times. But uh, the uni- one of the unique things about that song is that Smith's wife, Debbie, is actually the one that wrote the lyrics. You know what song I'm talking about, right? Friends are friends forever. Okay, you're looking at me like... There's a generational gap, EJ. I'm sorry. <laughs> his, his wife wrote the song... And and they wrote it because they had a friend in their Bible study group that was moving away. And and it was her idea to write that person a song uh, to express their love and their commitment to them. And so they sat down and in less than an hour both both the lyrics and the music was written. Not for the purpose of selling albums or being sung in churches or, or really even doing anything with it. That of What it's become has probably become his most recognizable hit, but just to express the unique relationship that they, they had with this friend. And there's a line towards the end that they repeat over and over, a lifetime is not too long to live as friends. And that touches on the last truth I want to give attention to in David and Jonathan's relationship. It's it transcends the earthly barriers that we think of when we think about our life. Uh, obviously, you can't always be physical friends with someone if they move away, but, but they're saying this whole lifetime, you don't, that relationship doesn't go away. The special character that's involved with it. There's something, there's something unique, maybe even spiritual, about a godly relationship that never goes away. Now, you know the rest of the story about... David and Jonathan, and and what happens ultimately? David has to leave, and he goes on the run. And uh, you know, as these two men are saying goodbye to one another, we have this gut wrenching scene. And, and in verse forty one, it provides us with the detail that it's really surprising that it tells us that that as they're weeping together, it says, it says both of them wept, but David wept the most. Of all the things we know about David, of all the things that he became to his people, this courageous leader, this, this person that represented victory and, and deliverance and prosperity to his people, uh, they, they stop and the biblical author acknowledges that he, he understood that there was something unique about godly friendship and, and he wept for it. And thankfully David's weeping isn't the last word about their relationship, though. As, as he is preparing to leave, Jonathan pronounces this blessing on him. In verse 42 on your screen, he says, "...Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever." And in these words, Jonathan makes possible what Saul would have never allowed. In these words, Jonathan makes possible for there to be peace between Saul's family and David's family. Now you know for all the talk about love and peace in the Bible, there's not a lot of it, right? Uh, especially in, in the Old Testament. But the friendship between David and Jonathan ensured that at the very least, Saul's conflict with David will eventually come to an end. And David's going to be able to be the king that he's supposed to be. The king that, that we ultimately know uh, Jesus came from his line. And even though the conflict is, is, is just part of the biblical world, even though conflict is part of our world, we have this model of friendship that transcends earthly barriers. And, and, and you know, when we think about our friendships, the, the barriers that, that they transcend, it's kind of mundane in comparison to, to Jonathan and David. But, but we have these barriers as well, whether it's age or whether it's, uh, you know, just being in different places in life, where friendship in Christ really should supersede those and go above those. Jack's daughter, Reese, has become this permanent fixture in the middle of our door handing out bulletins. And I'm not sure how that happened, but it just kind of happened. And she does it every Sunday, and she's always there, and she's right beside Larry McDonald. And that's the two most unlikely pair I'd ever think about. <laughs> but there they are every Sunday. And, and one day I'm standing by the door as, as Reese gets there, and she gets there before Larry. And, and she just grabs the bulletins, and she starts handing them out, and... And and Larry comes up a minute or two late and she doesn't bat an eye. She looks up at Larry and she says, You're late. (laughs) And what do you say? Larry, yeah, well, I guess I am, you know. I was impressed that that they have sort of this relationship that where else would a relationship like that between those two folks exist other than at church? It, it just doesn't happen. Godly friendship is different. It's not just based on hobbies or things people, that, people, people have in common or things that come natural. It's rooted in who God is and His self-sacrificial love and even the risk that it involves in us and reaching out to others. And so there's an intentionality that comes to having godly friendships. And, and those of you that are younger, that the intentionality might be reaching out, taking a risk to someone that's older in our church and, and saying, hey, I, I need you to be there for me. I, I need a mentor. I need someone to guide me and, and, and lead me. And Maybe for, for an older person that might be looking at that younger person and saying, well, I really don't want to give the time to do that. I'm not really comfortable doing that. It's weird. There's a generational gap there. Uh, we don't really relate, but recognizing that God can use you in their life in a way that, that, that they wouldn't have a relationship like that anywhere else. Maybe it has nothing to do with age or, or, or even another person. It might just mean being intentional in the relationships that you have. Because the bottom line when it comes to godly friendships is that it's not about me getting what I want, what I, need, what I think I need or what I want from who I want it from. It's about giving of yourself through what Christ gave of Himself. And so this morning the question is, how, how is God leading us? How is God guiding us to be intentional in the relationships that He's given us, to making them godly relationships as opposed to just regular associations? Let's pray together. God, we thank You for the bond that we have that should supersede everything else in our lives, but God, we also admit that in a, just in a normal world in a, in a fast-paced society that, that sometimes its it's hard to keep those relationships at the forefront. And I thank you for special relationships that we can have with one another, like like Reese's and Larry's and like my daughters and so many others in our church that, that supersede Uh, Gender and supersede uh, age. God, I pray that as we think about the relationships that exist in the Bible, especially Jonathan's and and David's, that we would desire to have those same type of godly and spiritual friendships. And God, that you would would allow us to be obedient to your Spirit's prompting, Uh, maybe even to provide a person in our lives that would be a blessing to us, not to overlook that because it might be different or uncomfortable or or just outside what we might expect. Help us to be open to that as you lead and you guide. In Jesus' name, amen.